we have had a major work shift in the last 50 years that is, as I said before, unprecedented in human history. It is. We witnessed a 50% reduction in projected numbers of young carpenters going into trades. What does that mean for home building? What does that mean for the economy? You know, a lot of people feel that we have warning bells ringing right now for the economic implications. I think there's just like gonna be no one to call in five years. We are living in like easily the strangest time in human history. Up until a hundred years ago, virtually everybody in the world was engaged in what we now call the trade labor force. There, There was no white collar market My conversation with Ethan James, the Honest Carpenter, is coming up next. We're going to dive deep into the challenge with the carpentry trade and the trades in general. They've been looked down on for too long. Consequently, young people don't want to go in the trades, and they're beginning to evaporate. What effect will that have on the economy and so much more? Here we go. All right, Ethan, I want to dive into where we stand in carpentry as a trade. We're going to get into the trades as a whole, but... Is there a huge, huge lack of talent? What does it look like right now as a trade and as a professional opportunity? It's a very good question. Um, As a trade, I would have to say we are at something like a low point in American history. Maybe I would have to say in trade history because these are like completely unprecedented times because everything's changed so much in the last hundred years. so as a trade, I would say in America, we're at a low point, but that is not to denigrate the tradesmen who are out there because I know dozens, if not hundreds of like outrageously good carpenters. It's just that we're having lower participation rates than ever right. in human history and particularly in this trade. Um, so I think it's obviously something we need to work on. It's something I've talked about on my channel before. And you know, as a job career, which is I think the second part you had asked me about, it, you know, this is controversial. I, I did have a video where I talked about why you can't find carpenters anymore and how I said in that video, if a young person asked me, should I become a carpenter today? I would probably steer them towards plumbing or electrical or HVAC, which are higher paying trades. Why is that? More... Let's dive right in there. Why? <sighs> this is very complex. There are multiple reasons for this, but probably the top reason. I was talking with my friend Logan Parker, who's a great builder and contractor in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. We were talking about this, and one of the reasons it comes down to is very functional. When your plumber shows up for a job, the time frame that they're going to be there is limited. Even if they're, like, replumbing your entire house, you're looking at days, you know? Like, pipes are relatively small compared to the structure of your house. And it's one of the reasons they charge a higher per-hour value is because they're gonna have fewer hours on the job site. So when they give their total bill, it still winds up up being digestible to the client, right? Houses, additions, decks, fences, gates, all this stuff takes a lot longer to build the Mm -hmm. carpentry side of things. You have more build hours, and if they were all at a really crazy high rate, no client could stomach that. You know, it's like, I think the market couldn't bear it. So that's one reason. And then there are a number of other reasons why I think carpentry in particular has degraded in pay value over time. But, um, so what you're saying is, okay, so I know it's complex, so I want to keep it simple because we're still staying in this. Where are we right now? And you're saying we have a lack of talent, meaning just people who can come out and do the carpentry work. And there's a variety of reasons for that. That's where we are. So we got into, yeah. you wouldn't advise a young person to go into it. 
on one hand, just because you're giving advice, but we need them. So we've got a, we've got a unique challenge here. So is illegal immigration, because my father-in-law is a custom home builder from Charlotte, North Carolina, has since moved to Tennessee in retirement. Listen, yeah. you go out on a construction site, I would venture to say, certainly in the Southeast, correct me if I'm wrong here, and you're going to find a lot of illegal immigrants that are in the trades and particularly in the construction areas. True or false? You can find a lot of immigrants in general. You know, I grew up working entirely uh, with a Vietnamese population that uh, my father hired. They were Dega, what we used to call right. Montagnard. Legal, legal immigrants. Okay. And um, Raleigh at that time was one of the highest concentrations of Dega population in America. And these guys were amongst the greatest carpenters I've ever met in my life. Right. The greatest workers I've ever met in my life. And yes, I met other undocumented workers numerous times so are they paid less than an american worker if an american shows up i'd say in the vast majority of circumstances they they absolutely are so has that contractors so has that led to some of the hourly rates uh what you said denigrating compared to maybe a plumber or an electrician uh i know it has to have played a part but i think the bigger issue is as i said in where have all the carpenters gone is that immigrants traditionally are going to take the hardest work and they're going to take some of the lowest paid work and carpentry is both. Yes. And it breaks you down crazy fast because plumbing is hard on you. You're, you're crawling in crawl spaces and whatnot all day electrical. You're crawling through the ceiling and attic. I do think that in shorter timeframes, carpentry is harder on the body because of the weights that we have to lift like you know a house weighs quite a bit and we put all that in place and just like the sheer amount of physical labor that goes into reducing milled lumber into components that become a house right is very very taxing on the body and that's so i think a lot of people avoid it so you know some people tried to kind of pose it as well what happened is that you know immigrants came in and stole all the jobs but what i think what happened is immigrants came in and took available jobs that people were vacating right nonstop over the last 50 years because we have had a major work shift in the last 50 years that is as i said before unprecedented in human history it is okay so how without making you give me super specific numbers is there a way to define the shortage of carpenters in 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 the country right now because we're talking about building houses that's way more important than getting your kitchen renoed you know and thanks to guys like you well, a lot of guys can do it themselves. So that's changed the game as well. But as we talk about building houses, which is a major staple of yeah. this American economy, home building, yeah. uh, which is there a way to define how short we are? Is it a number like, well, we're short 200,000 carpenters, we're short? What is that? Do you have a sense? Yeah, I, I have a friend, Misha Fisher, who's a very high-level economist. He was actually Angie's List and Home, Home Advisor's chief economist for a while, okay. and then he moved on to some other position. Um, when I started advocating for all this, Misha reached out to me and was like, look, I can pull data that most other people don't have access to. And he's done that for me a number of times over the last two or three years. And he's put together like numbers that I don't think anybody had ever seen before. And one of the things he had found, I was trying to get a sense of when our percentage of carpenters like throughout the population reached its peak Mm -hmm. and where it diminished because i had kind of assumed it's going to be in the 50s at some time that was like the like the last heyday of the trades you know the 1950s what misha actually found is that uh percentage of carpenters like per population peaked 
in the early 80s. Wow. And this this is when my dad was moving down to Raleigh to take advantage of the construction boom down here. Mm -hmm. um, but since then, the, the drop off that we've seen has been completely precipitous to the degree that from like 1980 to say maybe 2020, we witnessed a 50% reduction in projected numbers of young carpenters joining wow. the trade. So I don't know what, like what hard number that turns out to, sure. but 50% was a percentage that we, we pulled after Misha ran all the numbers. So let's play that out, Ethan. What, yeah. what over the next 10, 15, 20 years, if that number continues to dwindle, what does that mean for home building? What does that mean for the economy? Uh, for the economy, you know, a lot of people feel that we have warning bells ringing right now for the economic implications, because what's really going to happen is that that number applies specifically to carpenters under the age of 40. And that's what Misha and I kind of defined as a young carpenter, which I tend to agree with. Uh -huh. um, but the, the bigger issue is that the average age of our existing workforce kind of throughout the trades, but especially in carpentry, is hovering right around in the low 50s, like wow. 52, 53 years old. And then retirement age is about 56 to 60. Right. You know, again, because of the strain on the body. So we're about to go into a valley. And on the front side of the valley is older, experienced tradespeople aging out. And on the other side of the valley is whenever we manage to instill or bring in like new carpenters, young carpenters that are going to take over for them. And I think that pit that exists between the two, that's the danger point. And there is, there is kind of no telling how long it's going to last, although I see it as like an eight to 10 year thing. Okay. So I want you to explain that eight to 10 year valley. And then what, yeah. what, what do you think? And again, I know you can't completely crystal ball this, but what are you concerned about in that eight to 10 year period? Let's get deeper in that. So what I think is going to happen, houses are still going to get built because they're getting built now. And I think what's what's actually lagging and if everything's lagging, but if there's a strong point, it's like we still have bodies to build houses. What I think we're losing are craft carpenters yeah. who come in and knock out a lot of custom projects. That's like severely diminished. And then then our house building rates are going to drop off, too, as the older crew falls out. But house build, building will still get prioritized because it's system oriented. Right. You know, like you can carpenters can build a house really fast. Yep. Like our, our we'll, we'll frame a house in three to four days, a competent crew, sometimes a little longer. And then everybody, you know, all the other tradies come in, do their thing, drywall. And then we'll come in again at the end and we'll trim a house in a week or two. Right. You know. Um, and it's easy, easier for relatively small crews to jump from job to job doing that. Um, it, it will be harder with fewer carpenters, but where I think the bottom is really going to fall out is who do you call to maybe get your large deck repaired? You know, who do you call to, to give you that sunroom to push out the side of the house or whatever? Those are more boutique projects. Right. They're not ground up exactly because they involve demolition and then remodel um and i i think that's i think there's just like gonna be no one to call in five years in a lot of areas that aren't specifically wealthy wow and so yeah. that how does that ripple out house values if you can't get it fixed yeah things of I that think, nature yeah I, and again i'm not an economist i you should you should really have me show on your show if, if yeah. he ever is available but i can't help but assume 
I think people are just going to have to adjust mentally. Here's what I really think is going to happen. That I think we're going to identify this as a major problem very soon. I think we already are. You know, Mike Rowe is out there doing his thing. Right. There's guys like me who are kind of doing it at a lower level. There are Congress members and senators who are hearing all this now, and some are taking action. And I think we're actually starting to turn the tide now. All right. But, tell me what is what is happening that that is giving you hope that the tide is turning. What's that look like? What is the trend? What are some actions that are taking place? Um, probably the biggest ones recently were uh, Tennessee, you know, in particular is kind of leading the charge where they're making community colleges, community colleges and trade schools, I think specifically for trade specific studies uh, free, like mm -hmm. essentially free tuition. Yep. I think you'll see that in a lot more states. Um, at least Stefanik, the rep from New York, this past year, maybe earlier this year, floated a bill to allow Pell Grants, which is a, a cash hardship grant for students to be used at the community college and trade school level, which has never been done before. Um, then on top of that, you have like all these corporate initiatives like Home Depot, Stanley Black & Decker starting to chunk in their own cash, 50, 100 million dollars to advocate for the trades, to push people into trade, you know, uh, programming. And these are all these things are just like first wave efforts. But I, I, I think also like what you're doing now and what I'm doing right here with you is getting the message out that yeah. these jobs are out there, that many of them are good. Yeah. Uh, they can some can be improved upon. We're going to start to kind of hit the, the nadir of this curve and start to climb back out. And that's why that's I say eight, eight to 10 years. Yeah, OK, I think good. It's going to happen. Hey, I want you to stop right now and just listen to this. I want you to imagine life four months from now, but. You're actually making a starting salary of $75,000. Bethel Tech has a front-end web development micro-credential that you can earn in just 15 weeks for only $5,000. Coding skills are in high demand right now, and you learn them in less than four months. So whether you want to level up your career and salary or you've always wanted to be in tech, you can get started on Bethel Tech's front-end web development micro-credential or a data science micro-credential, another hot field. Now's the time. Let's go. The next class actually is right around the corner. March 18th is when it starts, and Bethel Tech is going to offer you, as a Ken Coleman Show listener, 10% off. So go to BethelTech.net slash Ken Coleman for details. Terms and conditions apply. So uh, before we move into uh, some of the messaging and the narratives, because I want to get your thoughts on what those narratives should be for parents, sure. you know, yeah. and, and what potential paths to prosperity exist in the trades. I want to get into that. But first... I, I've got to talk about what I think is the elephant in the room in this conversation, and it's a big elephant uh, yeah. nationally. Well, if you watch the news, depending on what network you watch, and you're watching immigrants stream across the border, you know, now the Biden administration comes out yesterday and says, we're going to build the wall, we're going to finish the wall. Okay, whatever happens there happens. But until right. then, a lot of illegal immigrants are streaming in. Not all are bad people. And and we're not going to get into complexities like how you solve all of it. But I just wonder if we can just get out of the geopolitics and out of the minutia of solving that problem. But we go, OK, let's just assume uh, because I've met them here in Tennessee, there's some good families and they've come here for freedom. They've come here for a chance to live their life. Uh, yeah. And if we could somehow and again, we're not getting into this part of it. But if we could streamline the citizenship process or the work visa process and plug them into these areas, it seems to me that this is a, a viable path, a viable option 
if we can do it and streamline it and and say, all right, uh, number one, you don't have to skulk around. Come on out and work uh, because yeah. a lot of them have the skills. And if they don't have the skills, they've got the desire. And they, they have a path to prosperity, real prosperity. So I think we've got to somehow get the powers that be uh, together and say, all right, we've got a, a a willing workforce here that's already here. Let's make it yeah. a lot easier, and and let's not penalize contractors because they're they're worried. You know, they let's 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 remove all of the stipulations and the penal penalties, and let's get these people to work and getting them working more openly. And and by the way, let's let's increase our tax base and maybe fill the the hole. What are your thoughts on that? I I know I gave you a lot to listen to there, but it seems to me this is an opportunity to fix an existing problem. I think not only is it an opportunity and a possible solution, I think it's actually the only solution at this point. And I see absolutely no reason why we wouldn't prioritize it as a solution. Again, I grew up working primarily with with immigrants, uh, documented and undocumented and you know, I started in the mid '90s and kind of wrapped up four or five years ago. Um, that that <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say here is that's already our population that's doing work, like you say, one way or another. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I say we need to expand I, it, expand it, legalize it, grow our tax base. It helps the local economy when we do that. Yeah. Okay. And good. Train. All right. And uh, train. Absolutely. So let me yeah. pivot to the narrative okay let's just say you and i were in a room right now with all these fancy marketers and we said and i i basically pulled them all together i said now look we got ethan here he understands this world let's create a narrative that we can send to american school children uh middle school let's start getting in front of them in middle school certainly high school let's get a message to the parents that combines with some of the efforts you mentioned earlier of corporations and states like Tennessee. Uh, shout out to Governor Bill Lee, who obviously you know ran a trades company uh, before he became yeah. governor. Um, what's that? What would you say to these fancy marketers? This is without trying to. You don't have to do the logos, or you don't have to do the messaging. But you <laughs> go make sure you're telling them this. This is what they need to know about their future earning potential if they were to get into the trade. This is expanding beyond carpentry. What, what would you say to those those smart people in the room? I, I'm glad you asked that because I think this actually has two directions that you go in. It's completely age-based. There's a line okay. right in the center. All right, let's go. Um, one, the most beautiful thing is you do not have to convince little kids to be interested in the trades. I promise you they're interested in the trades. I was in literally hundreds of houses because I was a small job mm-hmm. carpenter, and I never walked into a house with my occidental tool belt on that that the kids didn't start following me around right away what's that what's that right trucks in the yard dump trucks they're obsessed with that stuff you don't need to put that passion in them because kids i always say see through very clear eyes and that stuff compared to kind of the mundane reality of a lot of work in the world which is office work and paperwork the moment you pull up a crane you know or a front end loader kids are instantly fascinated isn't that that. true it's so true And, and so I think we definitely need to market these jobs towards kids, not as like, this is something you can grow up and do more like, look at how cool it is and just give it to them in a form of entertainment. Yeah. And then for the older population, I don't focus much on middle school, but more for high school when people are like, just maybe starting to think about work path. 
Um, what I really think we need, you can call me crazy, I think we need a Hollywood revolution. Um, because I said in a, another follow-up trade video, we simply are not represented on film anywhere realistically, and we're definitely not glorified, right? But if you look at shows like The Bear now, like people have fallen in love with cooking again, not yeah. just in their kitchen, but going out and opening restaurants and opening food trucks. And that's, I think, one, Food Network played a huge part in that, people like Anthony Bourdain. But now it has moved beyond essentially reality TV to glorified storytelling. That's what the bear is. It shows the reality, the struggle, the hardship. More than anything, it makes it look cool. And I know we can have storylines like that coming out of Hollywood about carpentry, about plumbing, simply about living the trade life. And I think that's what's going to appeal to the 17 to 20 year old set. I love that. Good narratives there. Uh, but, but, but let me dive just a little deeper on that. What do the trades provide young people? Well, think of the kid who doesn't want to wear a white collared shirt. The idea of wearing a yeah. suit and tie makes him itchy. Yeah. Um, you know, the kid who may be dyslexic, um, mm -hmm. have some learning challenges, brilliant, but they don't fit in a one-size-fits-all classroom. What would you say to those marketers? You need to hit this. You need to say this. Give me a little bit more on that side of things. What what, what is appealing to some kid like that? Uh, that? Honestly, I think that you get energy out because I've known so many people in the trades that are the type that can't sit down. You know, they didn't do well in school. Dyslexia is is a very common thing, especially yes. in my trade. I've known multiple people, sometimes with severe dyslexia, who were like super genius tradespeople. Yeah. And like a pit for working all day long, getting home, working on their houses. Some people just can't sit down. And you start to see that at a very young age in people. And the mm -hmm. first thing we do is we shoehorn them in a chair. And we start teaching them a lot of stuff, which is good to know, but then we don't give them any opportunity yeah. to do anything with their hands. And I think if you just pulled that kid aside for an hour a day and started giving them physical tasks that build on foundational trade skills, they're going to fall in love with it. And then if you pair that with messaging later on, there's like, did you know that you can get jobs doing this? You don't have to just sell shoes to people. You don't yeah. have to, you know, not like they're ever thinking about necessarily sitting down and filling out paperwork for people. Be like, you can be on your feet all day out in the sun, building stuff and making money. Yeah. And I think that would land with them. In your experience in the trades, how many times have you seen young people get in it and or guys that have been in it for a long time, maybe as a laborer working for someone and then they eventually spin off their own business? How often does that happen? Frequently, I would have a hard time giving numbers, but you got to understand that the vast, vast majority of trade, trade participation in America is done at a very small scale. Yeah. You're talking one to 10 person operations. Um, I know that there's definitely a contingent of the labor market that has no interest in running a business at all because business is hard. And sure. I, I learned that every time I, sure. I felt like I was a really good carpenter and that it was hard for me to balance all right. the side of things. Well, I never hired anybody, but the moment it usually goes to something like a one to three year curve where you get in, you feel really overwhelmed. You feel kind of lost. I remember feeling like that on the job site when I was younger, but then there comes a time where everything starts to click. All of a sudden you get like, you know what? I kind of know the whole scope of this. I don't know all the details, but I know the whole scope. The moment that happens, a good portion of people are suddenly going to be like, why would I do this for someone else? Because I kind of know how to do it now. And I think I can improve on what I was taught, mm -hmm. you know, and make better money. So I think there's a huge component to entrepreneurship that comes out of fairly low level trade participation.
Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you're right. The business, the running the business side is hard, but working for yourself is pretty freaking awesome. And, and the trades provide that opportunity. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, one way to win at work is to do work that you care deeply about. Like you actually give a crap about it. It's meaningful. But what do you do? How do you do that? Well, you got to dig. You got to figure out what is that? What is in my heart? So I ask people all the time, who are the people you really want to help? So you got to spend time on that. So how would you spend maybe an extra hour a day? Is it about reading a book, listening to a podcast like this or something else? Is it a new skill? Is it coffee with a mentor? Is it yoga? Maybe, maybe not. But can I make a suggestion? If this is about the heart and doing meaningful work, I think therapy can help you find what really matters to you. Your life, your life experience, environment you grew up in, pains, victories, that shapes your heart. And if you're thinking about therapy as, well, I just got to have something really bad going on in my life, I think you're missing it. I want you to try BetterHelp. Just try it. Therapy isn't just for people who are going through trauma. It's really great for awareness, self-awareness, to be able to build skills, to take that awareness and transfer it into work that really matters to you. And boy, will that change your life and your income. BetterHelp's awesome because they're flexible enough to fit your busy schedule. And it's all online. You fill out a short questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch at any time for no cost. Listen, folks, I do regular therapy. I can't endorse it enough. It's about awareness, and awareness is a superpower. So make time for what makes you happy. Use your time with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ken today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ken. What would you say are the, uh, I want to come back to what you said early on, if you were to pick two or three trades right now and you were speaking to every young person in America, which top three would you say, these are the three I would have you look into as it relates to future opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. Number one always is plumbing. Um, plumbing is the most scalable trade, at least in America, maybe around the world. You know, We've needed it. The Romans proved we needed it. We've needed it ever since. It's not going anywhere. It's only going to be improved upon, I think. But uh, you can scale plumbing so easily because it breaks down into a number of very specified tasks, like changing out a water heater, um, you know, taking out like old steel pipe and running pecs. Uh, and all these things happen pretty quickly. So it makes jobs very easy to bid, often almost at like a flat rate. And then it just becomes a sales thing, you know, just bringing as many clients as you can. So like I tend to always bring up Aaron Gaynor with Eco Plumbers up in um, Ohio, Columbus area. Aaron is not that old. He's not much older than me and was essentially a boots on the ground plumber like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And now is worth $30 million and has a company that's branching out into every corner of Ohio and is bringing in like hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. So plumbing can do that. Um, cool new one I learned about through my sponsorship with Blue Recruit, which is like a zip recruiter for trade jobs mechatronics if you got a nerdy streak in you and i know a lot of people who do and you you like electronic tasks you like machinery mechatronics is essentially going in and, and building and creating the robotic and the control systems that manage all sorts of things like our um logistics companies like amazon's and stuff all these automated warehouses that move a box like you know a quarter of a mile without a human touching it and shipping it out to somebody mechatronics is kind of a burgeoning field that um studies and controls that gets people ready for that uh those are probably the two big ones off the top of my head right now okay what about electricians are they still pretty hot i and i, I think of that because of, of how ubiquitous plumbing is i would think being an electrician yeah. 
really high rates as well, I would imagine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In my area, they always hovered just below plumber rates, and both of them hovered below HVAC rates. And the only reason I don't push a lot of people into HVAC is because I have like virtually no experience with it, whereas I did a little plumbing. I did a sure. little bit of electrical. But again, um, HVAC is, you know, if you're good with both of those things, you've got that, you yeah. got those technical skills that would work in both. Again, high demand. High oh, demand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I've joked I've joked before on my show, Ethan, that if my AC unit goes out in summer in Tennessee and the guy yeah. shows up uh, to fix it, my wife is much happier to see him than she will ever be happy <laughs> to see me. I mean, am I right? It's true, man. So it's you like talk you about... Wanna, you, yeah. I'm, you don't I'm think sorry. about it until it happens. Yeah. But well, no, I, I say that to make the right. point here for those that are considering It's like, you want to be appreciated? The, you People, get, listen, you get a leak in your house yeah. and a plumber shows up, I mean, you are the most popular person in the home. Uh, That's right. You come, know, come on in. Yeah. Uh, let me give you a bottle of water. Like, right. So the gratitude that people have, at least decent, healthy yeah. people have, yeah. when you come in and you do one of these trades, you want to talk about feeling good about yourself. I, yeah. I, I, I would imagine you feel pretty darn good about yourself fixing those kind of problems because it doesn't get any more yeah. intense than those kind of issues. Um, yep, exactly. I, I love that. Um, so we got here largely, um, I believe, by the marketing message that began in the late 60s, early 70s, that college, yep. the four-year degree, was the best way to success and a much better life. Yeah. Do you agree with that statement? That's how we got here as a whole. Meaning not having as many kids or, I mean, more people signing up to jump in the trades. Would you say that's a singular cause or just uh, uh, one of the causes? I think it's one of the causes. Um, I think it's definitely a cause because I grew up in a generation that was not pushed into the trades at all. I I can't even remember a lot of that messaging. It's like we had sort of burned it in so much that by my my time, they weren't even bringing it up anymore. They're just saying college, college, college. Um, But I think... I think of maybe even a bigger component, and this is just my opinion, is kind of what I said in the beginning that like we are living in like easily the strangest time in human history. Um, up until 100 years ago, virtually everybody in the world was engaged in what we now call the trade labor force. There, there was no white collar market. Yes, we had financiers, you know, and we had scholars and academics, but you're talking about they were like... A, just a tiny portion of the population everybody else was out there doing stuff with their hands Mm -hmm. in their bodies because we didn't have industrialized systems um now you know we went through the industrial revolution and then we went through the microchip revolution and what it did is it it gave this massive outlet to this incredibly huge portion of our workforce where white collar was invented you know, and you, the blue collar, white collar dichotomy emerged in like the 1950s once we had computers, essentially. Um, so the moment there was another option to go to that was easier on your body, that was at the time paying quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, that had all this upward mobility and expansion, like people just flooded into it, mm-hmm. you know. And, and then shortly after that, we began the college revolution, essentially, and telling people, <laughs> don't build stuff anymore. And it's like nobody had the the insight at the time shockingly to be like wait this might backfire on us uh in a generation or two which it has so i do see it as a combination of okay and then i've got to ask you this you can't go a day without seeing artificial intelligence ai talked about in the news curious uh i 
I don't think it's going to ever replace the trades. Could it enhance? Will you see it enhancing the trades? Or will it be non-existent? I think you're going to see it more on the architecture side of things. Uh, I mean, you know, AI can probably design a pretty good house or give you like 30 options and more what an architect is doing is, you know, piecing together. I I, I only see architects as being on the fringe of the trades, essentially. Um, It's not a trade itself. But no, I mean, I, I don't think it will do anything to replace trade it can't because ai is essentially software yeah and humans are hardware that's right with software running us you know and yeah. so like while our our software is going through the roof right now our hardware is seriously lagging yeah like those dogs that run around you know and i guess people you, you could theoretically put a gun on it it's impressive it's an amazing piece of robotics but it is like yeah. centuries away from yeah. crawling under your house measuring a joist, right. going out to buying another one and cutting and replacing yeah, so it. So you don't no, see I'm, robots uh, framing houses? In in uh, factory settings, yes. And we've already been doing that for a sure, while. And it's course. still human-assisted, like trust building. You go in there, they got all these crazy tables that do the That's work. Right. You still got people throwing down pieces and stuff, and you too, got, Yeah, so. so I got to tell you about this. And I'm glad you make this point. Yeah. Um, I took a call on the show recently where a guy was asking me, Ken, do I stay in my my welding job that I really enjoy, or do I take another welding job that's going to pay me more? And I said, well, tell me about the other welding job. And it was a job where he was going to be monitoring a welding machine all day long, <laughs> but he was going to make more money. And, uh, and so to your point, they were hiring him, and he was going to make more money to not weld, but to, to make sure weld. that the machine was welding properly. So I think the irony there is rich. It is, and certain trades lend themselves to that more because they are more system-oriented and they can be done in these controlled settings. Essentially what you do is you produce a product and then you ship it, you know? And so, yeah, we've, I mean, we've been experimenting with modular houses. The first two houses I ever built or worked on back in 95 or 6 were modulars. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been doing that for like 40 plus years now. It's come a long way, but it still hasn't, in America, hasn't replaced stick building. Yeah. And I just don't, yeah, we're going to evolve. You're going to see more of that play a big role in the industry, 30% yeah. of houses, 40% of houses, but it's never going to fully replace it. All right, i got to ask you this, um, and then yeah. I'll let you go. Do you see an opportunity for these carpenters in their 50s, 60s? Take my father-in-law, 72 Guy's a phenomenal carpenter. He's retired. He's just putzing around, but he's making crazy money yeah. in this area. Yeah. Just doing like reno projects and things like that. Is there a place for men and women like him uh, in carpentry uh, to be paid handsomely to be training the next generation if we see this evolution? Like who's going to be teaching these kids if we see more trades being taught in high schools? I mean, is there an opportunity to become a part-time shop teacher, if you will, for uh, retired or carpenters who physically just can't do it anymore, but they could get in a classroom. Do you see that as a as a potential economic side boom? Side hustle? I do, although I do think it's complex. I think, one, if, if you're talking in terms of like making money, that's the goal here is to get, get these guys paid and get their knowledge transferred. Um, it may not be through the school system, not unless something about schools change, just because it's always been hard to be a teacher. I can remember being in middle school shop class, ironically, the only phase of my education where we had shop class of any kind. And those kids just gave that poor guy hell. I you get know? it. I, like, get I, would, it. I get that. You know, but I let me terrified. ask you this. If it's privatized, yeah. 
So let's yeah, say uh, yeah. let, let's say I decide to open up a, a carpentry training school in Williamson County, Tennessee, and I've got yeah. good carpenters who are older. They got all the knowledge, uh, and they've got the time now. And and then you. Well, my point is, there's an opportunity there. Absolutely, and yes, and not only is there an opportunity, we we need it to happen because I I always said like like my grandfather was a master tradesman, multiple trades, and. I always got this sense that when he was going to pass away, like so much information was going to go down with the ship. You yeah, know what I mean? Like I he, agree. he instructed for uh, Evan Rude small motors, like up and down the East coast would go do, do small workshops and stuff. Um, and, and when he passed away, you know, like stuff like that vanishes. So not only do I think it needs to happen, I think, yes, maybe a type of private privatization could help. And obviously you're looking at the content. Boom. I'm living inside of it. You know, like my, my trade career got shortened by, cartilage on the back of my kneecap it took something that small to completely pull me out of the field and as i was leaving it i thought like you know i was about to go get like a job an office job and i just thought like what's in my head has to be worth something and the youtube channel sprang out of that and these online courses sprang out of that but we have the greatest educational platform in the history of the world right in front of us right now that's right on youtube and there are other things like it and i and i would encourage what I would love to see is young tech savvy people teaming up with old trade savvy people to produce content and make money off it. And that's where I think the real money is. Nice. So let's uh, let me just make sure I hear this right. Take an 18 year old that understands cameras and all that kind of stuff and how to edit YouTube because yeah. that's their world. And yeah. they get with some old bird and they start making videos like you have with teaching people yeah. how to install a shower or whatever. And yeah. you're and, and I want people to hear what you're up to. Because while you're doing very well on YouTube, you are now creating courses. What are those courses, and and where do you want to see those go? Thank you for bringing it up. Um, I made my launched my very first online course about a month ago. It's called Power Tools Explained. Uh, my buddy Steve Ramsey, probably the most famous woodworker on YouTube, encouraged me to make courses. I set out to essentially make a carpentry basics course and realized first things first, I need to talk about power tools because they're the serious limiter and barrier to people to entry because they terrify people. So went ahead and made my first three hour online course, Power Tools Explain, a deep dive in how to use the 20 most important power tools for carpenters and DIYers. That one's live now, it's selling, people are really enjoying it. Net, early next year, I'm doing my first carpentry basics course, which it will be introductory. It'll be small projects. I pulled my audience. That's what they wanted first. Uh, and it'll probably take me about five months to launch that one. And then I'm going to go into construction related material where we're really breaking down house framing, you know, pouring slabs, drywall. I'll probably steer clear of plumbing and electrical. It's just not my, my wheelhouse. But yeah, I, online courses are becoming a very important thing for content creators because these, while I'm very grateful to have YouTube, we all know that the social networks are like flimsy at best. It's just hard to tell what's going to happen with them. And it's easier to teach in your, on your own platform in your own way and take a smaller audience and not worry about the advertisers gotcha. and everything. So that's what I'm moving so to. So how does your online course defer? Does it go deeper or is it different oh, yeah. than your YouTube content? Yep. YouTube content, I always say it's great because it's free. And that's why I say it's the greatest educational platform ever. As long as you're willing to sit through a commercial, you can learn darn near anything. But the problem is you have to fight like a salmon upstream just to get the clicks and the eyeballs. And it means you got to kind of like splash up your content 
with a little filler, you know? And so it's, it's always kind of hard to really drill down and teach something because you got to spend so much time trying to play the entertainment game. And that's why making an online course was utterly grueling. Like, I mean, backbreaking, but it was incredible because for the first time ever, wall to wall in that three hours, it is nothing but instruction, basically. And it right. let me just like go completely in, take someone under the hood and tell them everything they need to know in a linear fashion without bouncing back and forth week after week, yeah. same topics being like, what's going to perform instead just find people who want to learn one thing and really teach it to them. I so love it's been that. Fun. I got to ask you. for people like me who should never be allowed around power tools. Is there a lot of safety <laughs> information in there on that course? So I don't lose That's, four fingers. Yeah, absolutely. I okay. never want you losing four fingers. I'm That's exactly you. what it is. Um, I, I kind of say that it explains what the tool is for because every tool is made to solve some problem. Um, how it works and then how to use it safely. Yeah. Those are the three things I focus on in every single part. It's 16 uh, videos covering Love 20 it. tools. So very, very safety oriented. Tell people where they can find uh, your YouTube channel and the online courses. Okay, I'm Ethan James. You can find me on YouTube at The Honest Carpenter. It's not that hard to find on YouTube, but I just updated thehonestcarpenter.com. That's where you can find my courses. We're creating a bunch of free materials that you can sign up for. We've got a newsletter. Check us out at thehonestcarpenter.com today. I love it. Ethan, you're a great American. You really Thank are. You, sir. I think you embody the American dream in so many ways. I love your story. You. I love your success. And Thank I you. love your insight. I think we need it. And I appreciate you coming on and spending valuable time with us. I know we're all a lot better for it. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on, Ken. And I appreciate what you're doing here. Hey, if you enjoyed this conversation, will you help me by spreading the word? Like the episode, subscribe to our channel, and share. We'll talk to you again soon.